You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Okay, this is Tom Ricks, and I'm going to read a passage from my book, Churchill and Orwell. This is actually the last paragraph of the book, and it's from the afterword, which I came to think of as my journalistic last will and testament. The struggle to see things as they are is perhaps the fundamental driver of Western civilization. There is a long but direct line from Aristotle and Archimedes to Locke, Hume, Mill, and Darwin, and from there, through Orwell and Churchill, to Martin Luther King, writing his letter from Birmingham City Jail. It is the agreement that objective reality exists, that people of goodwill can perceive it, and that other people will change their views when presented with the facts of the matter. If I had an alternative title for this book, it would have been The Facts of the Matter. I agree. <laughs> Thomas E. Ricks is the author of six books, including The Generals, Making the Cores, and the number one New York Times bestseller, Fiasco, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. He's the advisor on the national security at the New America Think Tank and a member of its project on the future of war. He is also a contributing editor to Foreign Policy magazine, for which he writes the prize-winning blog, The Best Defense. His new book is Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom. Thank you for joining me, Mr. Ricks. You're welcome. It's good to be here. At the heart of this book are these two men and their relationship to the real world. <laughs> not the world that they would like to live in, not the world as described by other things. I think it's so important that these men were both concerned with the facts of the matter. Churchill and Orwell, um, really the important time in their lives and what this book is about is the 1930s and 40s. And the 30s are a time with some echoes in our own. The 30s were a time of political turbulence, of turmoil, of a lot of people thinking the democracy might be finished, and especially people saying party allegiance, party loyalty is more important than facts. So if you're a communist, you disregard or actually suppress facts that disagree with the party line. Likewise, if you're a fascist, you only believe the things that the fascist party tells you to believe. And a lot of people back then thought those were the only choices, fascism or communism. And one thing I love about Orwell and Churchill is they said, number one, there is an alternative. We can preserve individual liberty, freedom of thought, freedom of expression, freedom of association. And number two, facts matter. You cannot put opinion over facts. Churchill's youth was really interesting. I did not expect him to be such a handful as he proved to be. Churchill is a handful throughout his life. <laughs> uh, he's an extraordinary figure. One thing I really liked about writing about both these guys mm -hmm. is they are such flawed human beings. They are great people, but their flaws are also great. Orwell has a strong streak of anti-Semitism in him, for example. Orwell 
and writing about women is just cringeworthy. <laughs> um, he really seems not to understand women at all and really is not a very good naturalistic novelist. His, his natural sort of his conventional novels I found unreadable. And I tried. I thought, well, Tom, you're writing a book about this guy. You should read these novels. And I tried and tried, and I'm here to tell you they are unreadable, those early novels. Churchill is even writ even larger as an extraordinary figure. Um, probably an overwhelming narcissist, certainly lacking in empathy, an amazing bon vivant. Uh, one thing I like about Churchill is he insisted on having and wearing tailor-made pale pink silk underwear. Say that five times fast. Uh, he, one morning in World War II, he was in Cairo, staying at the British Embassy there. And at the breakfast table, he turned and asked for a carafe of cold white wine. And the ambassador's wife kind of raised her eyebrows for breakfast, you know, prime minister. And he said, don't worry, I've already had two whiskey sodas. Uh, Orwell, by contrast, is an introvert, uh, kind of ascetic, doesn't really pay attention to the needs of his own body. He's about six feet tall, weighs about 135 pounds, has terrible lungs, real problems, yet chain smokes, hand-rolled cigarettes. One day in World War II, he came home, and his wife had kindly left for him his dinner on a plate and also food for the cat. And absentmindedly, Orwell ate the cat's food and fed his own dinner to the cat. The uh, the dinner the cat's food, by the way, was boiled eels. <laughs> That's not something you're going to get me eating. No. <laughs> I think that uh, the power of this book comes from how different these men were in their public and in their private lives, yet how focused they were on these kind of abstract central concepts, the concept of the importance of freedom at the most individual atomic core level. These men were absolutely dedicated and would brook absolutely no um, consequence. It, it had to be that way. It, it, it fascinates me that these guys are so different. Churchill is an imperialist, a conservative, as I said, a bon vivant. Orwell is a socialist all of his life, rather anarchic, um, kind of isolated from other people, and actually ends up his life living, for the most part, on an island off the coast of Scotland. Yet, one from the right, one from the left, looking at the 1930s, say, what is the key question of our time? And they say, no, a lot of people think it's what Marx says, ownership of the means of production. Other people say, it's what Freud says, the workings of the unconscious. And they say, no, the key question of their time, and I think they were right about this, is how do you preserve individual autonomy in an era when the state is more intrusive, corporations are growing more powerful? And they, make, they say this is important because they come to believe what you say. That's a good word. That at the atom, freedom begins at the atomic level with the right of the individual to say, what do I perceive? And to trust one's own perceptions and not have to distrust what you see and what you think because the government tells you to. So don't forget Winston Smith, by the way, the hero of 1984 is Winston Smith, named for you-know-who. 
something I never knew. But as soon as I read that in the book, I go, of course, of course. It's so fascinating to read this book. Churchill, you know, in 1948, uh, when when Orwell is writing, uh, 1984, there was only one Winston in England. Mm. You know, the other politicians were known by their last names, Baldwin, Chamberlain, Attlee. Everybody in England knew Churchill as Winston. He was a sort of larger-than-life figure, sometimes almost cartoonish. Um, but Winston Smith, in, in this book, has a job. And he goes every day to his ministry, and he gets rid of facts the government no longer wants. And he actually has this thing at the end of his desk called the memory hole. And he cuts facts out of publications and documents and drops them into the memory hole. People tend to remember that because the memory hole has become kind of a phrase uh, that, 19, that 1984 gave us, like some other things like Big Brother and Ignorance is Strength and War is Peace and so on. But the other part of Winston Smith's job that amazed me and I think is relevant to today is he – what part of his job was to dumb down language. So he explains to a friend in the book, we used to have words like splendid and excellent. Now we just have good, double good, and double plus good, <laughs> which kind of reminds me of a certain president's limited vocabulary. I think that uh, these books, it's impossible to read this book without being caught up in current events. As you were writing this, you were writing, you had just come off of writing Fiasco, which is a book that was intensely grounded in extremely controversial current events and and politics and policies. This must have been fairly, I guess, wearying for you to just submit to that grinding and you make a decision, well, I'll write about something that's 60, 70 years, 80 years removed from now. It's got to be more relaxed. I can just write an interesting, dense, layered book about history. Didn't turn out. (laughs) Well, the origin of the book was a little bit odd. Actually, after Uh, I came off my last book, I was planning on writing a book about the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. partly because there is no good operational military history of the war. What happened on a daily basis? Why? How things changed? What didn't change? I spent six months preparing for that sort of reviewing the literature, and decided after six months that, yes, there was a crying need for that book, but in order to write it, I'd have to learn to read and write and speak Vietnamese and probably live in Hanoi for three or four years. And I thought, that's not going to happen. But at the same time, I've been going back and reading a lot of 20th century journalism, kind of wondering as I was leaving journalism to become a full-time book writer, what journalist will live on? Who will still be important to us and who will be forgotten. So kind of doing just a review of the great journalist. And I began with H.L. Mencken. And I thought, Mencken is an anachronistic style. He's wrong on politics. He'll be forgotten. And then I turned to S.J. Perlman. Didn't find him funny. Then I went to E.B. White, good prose stylist, but his concerns are not mine and not contemporary picked up some Hemingway, and I thought, just this guy's a blowhard. <laughs> As he comes across in the book. And, yes. And then I picked up George Orwell, and it was a stunning moment to read Orwell and realize this guy feels like a contemporary. His prose style is fresh. His concerns are my concerns. He speaks to today in a way that none of these other journalists did. You could take a chunk of an Orwell essay 
drop it into today's newspaper, and it would seem perfectly at home. And so I began reading more and more Orwell, and then um, realized one day he was kind of like another one of my heroes, Winston Churchill, very different person, but that they both kind of spoke to today. And I mentioned to my literary agent that I was sort of really thinking about writing a book about Churchill and Orwell. And I said this with great trepidation. I thought, who's going to want that? And he said, Tom, I can sell that book in a heartbeat. Go ahead and write it. And I said, okay. And you're right. As I wrote it more and more, it was like I began writing this book because I was interested in it. And then every day the headlines are kind of catching up with me (laughs) to the point at which uh, last winter friends were saying, Tom, you need to get this book out. And, And But I actually am glad it came out now when it did because it's time to stand back and say, okay, we've seen Trump as president for several months. We're in this new world. How do we better understand it? And I think this book, for myself, really helped me understand how to think about the contemporary political environment and also kind of gave me some answers about what the way forward might be. You know, for me, one of the really interesting things about uh, the politics in this book was that Churchill, who at least early on seems like, I have to say, at first you see, seems like Trump abornin. I mean, he's a spoiled rich kid. He does whatever he wants. But what Churchill came to understand through his military service was the importance, and, and he gained an ability to use the government bureaucracy, a huge government bureaucracy, as a tool. He knew that you could do great things with government, and he knew how to work it. Well, this is actually a real difference between Trump aborting and, uh, and Churchill. <laughs> yes. Is Churchill is a real conservative. Mm-hmm. He deeply believes in the role of government, in institutions, in the rule of law, uh, in having a common agreement about who we are and what we're trying to do as a people. He deeply believes in liberty. Uh, now, he is not a, a saint. There are real problems with Churchill. And this is one thing I actually wish interviewers would bring up more with me. Churchill in Africa, Churchill on colonialism, Churchill on India, there are real problems. But on balance, judging Churchill, he did a great thing in 1940 when he essentially saved Western civilization. For a man who was a failure most of his life, that's a pretty good achievement. Well, I think that's one of the, that's one of the most enjoyable aspects of this book, what you were bringing up before, was that these men were not afraid to fail, and they were good at failure in that they would fail at something and then figure out something else to do. They also failed for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. They failed because they believed in something. Uh, Their 1930s, both have very difficult 1930s. First, both of them nearly get killed in the 1930s. But second, and more importantly for your question, they are willing to criticize their own side when they think their own political allies are off base. And I think that's essential to remember today. Mm-hmm. One of the things I think about the way forward in our own political life is pay attention to the people of principle, whether or not you agree with them politically. Do they stick to their principles and do they let the facts speak out or they try to suppress them? Do they apply their principles to the facts? So with Churchill in the 1930s, 
he splits with his own conservative party and really goes into what he calls the political wilderness. He's very isolated. The key question is, what do we do about the rise of Nazi Germany? And the conservative party, which is in power, makes British foreign policy appeasement. We will appease Hitler. We will give him little bites to eat. And this is seen as the smart policy. It's the clever approach. We don't have a big enough military to fight him. And even if we did, nobody else in Europe would join us. So this is the smart move. And Churchill says not only hell, not, I'm sorry, back up. Churchill says not only no, but hell no. That's wrong. It violates a basic principle. You cannot preserve your freedom by giving away other people's freedom, by letting Hitler take the Rhineland, take Austria, giving him a bit of Czechoslovakia. All you're doing is making him stronger. You're trying to avoid war. But all you're doing is making for a bigger and harder war when it comes, and it will inevitably come if you do this, if you don't confront him and try to stop him. And for this, Churchill is mocked. He is isolated. He is regarded in his own party as a washed-up, tired old hack, kind of a really kind of a sad joke who should disappear. Orwell, likewise, in the 1930s, breaks with the left. The left view among a lot of people is communism is, is the future. It's the only alternative to fascism. And anything that helps communism win is good, even if it's lying. And Orwell steps back and says no. He goes to Spain in 1936 and has an extraordinary experience. He nearly is killed, shot through the throat. And he sees that the biggest enemy that the communists have in Spain is not the fascist. It's non-communist leftists, the socialists, the anarchists. Those are the people the communists are intent on wiping out with the help of Stalin and his espionage organization, the NKVD, which becomes very involved in the Spanish Civil War, eliminating non-communist leftists, Trotskyites and such. They even build a crematorium on the outskirts of Barcelona to dispose of the body of the leftists they capture and execute. There are some really beautiful scenes in this book <clears throat> where uh, Orwell's wife, com- Orwell comes back and his wife comes up to him and says, it's, it, you describe it as, and it sounds exactly like something out of a Hitchcock film. I think the most important uh, part of the book to me is the afterward, mm-hmm. the part that I, that I read. But the chapter I enjoyed writing most is exactly that, the one you're talking about, uh, Orwell in, in Spain. As I was writing it, I thought, why hasn't somebody made a movie of this? I was thinking, I, I'm ready to go pitch that to Guillermo del Toro right now. <laughs> would, oh, that would be so good. Um, he, he's just, Spain, he comes back from Spain, and, he, and you know, we talk about fake news nowadays. Mm-hmm. He comes back and he says, People are lying on the left and right about this. And whole newspaper stories are written about battles that never happened. People are being described as heroes who never heard a shot fired. This is wrong. It's so fascinating. It's, it's so... <clears throat> the uh, What he saw and described is something that is still with us to this day. And that's what's so riveting. And also... That's where he began to experience, have direct experience with spies and surveillance and the idea that behind any single person you might see might be the machinery of a giant government whose only intention is to crush you like a bug if you disagree. Exactly. I mean, he is seeing friends of his executed in Spain. 
And we now know that uh, he fled Spain in June of 37. Uh, just a few weeks after that, he and his wife were both indicted for Trotskyite deviationism and treason. And had he stayed in Spain, he very well might have been jailed and even, even killed. But the lesson I take away from that is you have to begin with the facts. And that's what he said. I don't care what your political party line is. I don't care what your ideology is. What are the facts of the matter here? And he had an early experience, as you were saying, of what we now call alternative facts of all these like fake news reports. I mean, this we call fake news. We think we've invented everything, but that's absolutely not the case, as you find when you read this book. Well, I think that's actually one reason that this book seems to have such relevance and is getting such a response from people. By the way, it was just um, I was just told yesterday it'll be on the New York Times bestseller list starting on June 11th. And I've really sensed as I traveled around the country talking about the book that it is resonating with people because they feel that we are in a similar situation now. Uh, one reason I really like these guys is they are willing to criticize their own sides and they're insisting on the facts. And I think that really is the way forward for us. Look for people who have principles, talk about facts, look for people who also can provide historical context. One thing I've really been struck by lately is I think the most interesting political commentary coming out right now is from a group of people who didn't exist, really, a year ago, which is anti-Trump conservatives. And I'm really paying attention to them these days. The, um, I'm thinking, for example, of Elliot Cohen, a professor who writes for uh, The Atlantic, David Frum. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, amazing. He's... Max Boot. Yeah, uh, I mean. Jennifer Rubin. Exactly. These people are saying Trump is not a conservative. Trump is a radical reactionary, and there's a real difference. He does not respect institutions. He does not respect the law. He doesn't respect the judiciary. He doesn't even understand the Constitution and how this country is supposed to work. I'm not a conservative, so they bring a perspective that I don't have, and I'm finding it very illuminating. And I'm looking for other groups like that to try to follow, people who are saying, no, let's talk about tradition, let's talk about facts, and let's talk about what's really going on in a fact-based way rather than just promulgating opinion. Well, I think the the beauty of this book is that both of these guys, as you point out, they were not rock stars of their time or after. I mean— Orwell died shortly after writing his greatest book, and he wasn't really known at all during when he when he died. Well, this is the, an oddity of Orwell is yeah he really is a minor figure in his own time. Mm-hmm. I think nowadays people look back and they think of Orwell as sort of the major writer of the British nineteen thirties and forties. Nobody would have thought so back then, not even Orwell. And we don't know any of the people they thought were major writers yeah, these I mean, days. So. Yeah, Stephen Spender and various other people like they're kind of only really known to. English professors these days. And likewise, we tend to think of Churchill because you always see these movies about him and everything. Churchill was a failure for most of his life. And people really thought he was washed up. Even when he became prime minister in May 1940, a lot of people thought he wouldn't last very long. Right. It'd be a one, he'd be a one-term president, as, or, as we would call or it. Or just a, a few months president. Right. I mean, a few months prime minister because a lot of people still thought going into 1940 that there would be a peace settlement with the Germans, probably along the lines of the British would say to the to Hitler, fine, you can have Europe and we get to keep our empire. And 
Churchill just marches in there in his sort of energizer bunny-like way, pounding away and says, no, 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 we will not give up. And when somebody talks about surrender, he says, the last words that are going to come out of my mouth as I lie on the ground, choking on my own blood, are no, we do not surrender. I think it's interesting that you frame 1984 as a horror story. It's so often seen as science fiction, as Orwell trying to project into the future. It's helpful to remember that he wrote it in 1948. He wasn't right projecting into the future. No, church, uh, let's go back, back up again. Uh, Orwell in 1948 is doing something really interesting when he writes 1984. He says, you want a horror story? I'll give you a horror story. And it's not some made-up monster like Frankenstein. It's not Godzilla. The real horror, the real monster, is big, intrusive, all-seeing surveillance government. And that's the monster that pursues his hero, Winston, through the novel. It was fascinating to read about his time in the trenches, and particularly when he uh, fired, uh, tried to shoot a rat. <laughs> and that that uh, keeps uh, that proves to be uh, prescient. There's a lot of Spain in 1984. I'm glad you pointed that because I was thinking about this recently. Um, at one moment in, in Spain, he is a fugitive. He's hiding out as he gets ready to leave Spain. Mm. And he sees an old comrade of his on the streets. And they both know they can't recognize each other. It's too dangerous. And he's so angry about this that state power has made him turn away from an old friend and comrade. And that is also is a thread that comes as to 1984, where friendship is really the enemy of the state. So I like the idea that having friends and sticking by them is a kind of way of fighting back against the powerful state. You, you uh, were talking earlier about when these men were wrong, which was, <clears throat> to a certain extent, early and often, <laughs> and, and also uh, later in their lives. And I think it's important this book does a good job of balancing out the absolutely astonishing moments. I mean, Churchill's early speeches, towering pieces of writing and oratory, with Churchill's, well, kind of mistakes. One thing I really like about these guys is they are so flawed. They're so <laughs> human. I have come to think that most of human life is failure. mm to, fail, to, to be human is to fail every day in some ways. We all fall short of our goals, of who we want to be, of the world we want to live in, and so on. And these guys are really failures most of the time and most of their lives. Yet they have these, as you say, they have these great moments. And they so resonate in part because of their flaws that they rise above them. Or even, I think Chir Churchill survives World War II and partly because of his flaws. A man who had more empathy who was not so self-centered, I don't think could have emotionally survived being prime minister from, 1930, from, May, from May 1940 until 1945. I think a more sensitive, more caring person would have been crushed by the experience. The other thing that really strikes me is, as we talk is for a, lot, for a lot of people thought that Orwell's 1984 was kind of an interesting minor work of the Cold War. One critic described it as sort of the Uncle Tom's Cabin of the Cold War. <laughs> that it would be kind of seen as a period piece, 
kind of forgotten. And actually, the end of the Cold War has kind of liberated 1984. People have seen it's not just an anti-Stalinist book. It's a, it's a book about the abuse of power in all forms. And it's Orwell's great warning is not Stalinism is bad. That would not make for an interesting book. His great warning is the abuse of power in all forms is something to be very careful of and may be the defining characteristic of our times. Uh, for me, this uh, concept of power and how it is used is really fascinating in this book because it's such a dynamic. Churchill, on one hand, he he knew how to do it. When it came to like moving the military, he knew how to motivate them. And this was important because... Britain had a pretty significant military, but they were more used to kind of like sitting around and listening to Neville Chamberlain and then actually getting off the keister and doing something. And it's really interesting because we forget now, his generals hated him. They loathed him. He's constantly interfering. He's constantly second-guessing. Micromanager to the max. Exactly. And I was actually trying to talk the uh, Harvard Business Review into doing an article about this. Churchill, the micromanager who was effective as a micromanager. He Sometimes was. there's a place for it. Mm-hmm. If he had left World War II to the generals, the war would have lasted probably another year or two. They didn't want to do the D-Day landings in 1944. They were worried that they would just be thrown back into the sea. Churchill understood the war in many ways better than they did. Well, he, and he was unafraid of uh, landings that would get him thrown back into the sea, not to wit Gallipoli. Churchill understood that failure is not always bad. Mm-hmm. That often, and especially in war, it's better to do something than do nothing. So even some things that are now seen as, as failures, like the Norway landings mm-hmm. in the spring of 1940, if you look at the larger picture, yes, the Norway landings failed. The British were actually thrown back out into the sea and had to retreat and leave. But in the course of that, they did so much damage to the German Navy that the German Navy thought it couldn't really help with an invasion of Britain later the same year. And so his attitude of do something, keep the enemy off balance, make the enemy worry about what you're going to do, don't worry about what he's going to do, I think was a very interesting philosophy and one that um, I think was very effective in the conduct of the war. It was, in a sense, a means of... uh using the language of war to conceal your weaknesses. Yes, the as Clausewitz called it, the grammar of war. And he spoke that, understood that grammar um, in its biggest picture. But it, let me back up. He understood the big picture in a way that his generals didn't. One of the most interesting things he wrote is an essay on painting, uh-huh. which actually kind of illuminates his view of war, to my surprise. Uh, he took up painting at a very low point in his life. He was, another time, after the Gallipoli landings, he was out of government, kind of a failure, uh, was sitting in his country house, and as a middle-aged man, looking for something to do, took up painting. But he says in this essay on painting that when you're painting a, a, a wor- working on a painting, that you have to work on the minute detail at the same time you keep the big picture in mind. And that's an exact description of how he ran World War II. And I think in this book, you do a wonderful job of humanizing these men because they both had very complicated relations with a pretty large number of women. And they 
didn't deal too well with them. On I, neither one really did. I think Churchill did a little bit better. Churchill but. did a, a little bit better. Um, Orwell is really problematic with women, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't believe in presentism. You know, judging everybody by today's standards. Right. For example, I personally believe that a hundred years from now, we will look on eating meat like we look on slavery now. Exactly. I think everybody's going to be a vegetarian 100 years from now. We'll all be eating a roast beast that grows in our uh, refrigerator and likes to be sliced. <laughs> Nonetheless, I had a cheeseburger yesterday. Uh-huh. We are paradoxical people. We are not easily explained human beings. As I said, to be human is, is, to, is to fail, but also to be human is to be complex. These are really complex and interesting people who I think in some ways their failures help them to be great. For example, Orwell has some pretty dark streaks in him. And I think this is one reason he became fascinated by the exercise of power. I think there may have been a kind of sadistic part to him. part, And he was kind of afraid that when he had power as a young policeman in Burma, and what the hell was he doing going to be a policeman in Burma? This sort of budding young leftist. I don't understand that at all. Uh, but there are some pretty dank parts in the sort of the basements of his subconscious. <laughs> and part of 1984 comes out of that, his understanding of how people come to torture each other, for example. Yeah, you have to have at least some amount of vileness in you to be able to portray the truly vile as he did so convincingly well. And he's willing to look at that, which I think is his strength to say, "Okay, let's 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 confront this. Let's talk about who we really are and how human beings behave. All human beings behave when they have unchecked power. Which was also Churchill's strength. He was willing to talk about the Nazis in the exact same way at a time when nobody else was. This is actually, I think, the key to the great speeches you mentioned, the 1940 speeches, whose phrases we know even now. Is there any other politician who we know so many phrases from? Mm-hmm. And this is decades later. We will fight them on the beaches. Um, blood, sweat, and tears. Who else gets a rock band named after <laughs> a, a, you know, a speech in 1940? Um, their finest hour. All those speeches come in 1940. And what he is doing with the British public is giving them the hard, cold, unvarnished facts that nobody else is willing to say. And so, for example, that speech we remember, uh, we will fight them on the beaches. In fact, what he's doing is describing a fighting retreat if the Germans invade, which they expected they would that summer. So he says, we will fight them on the beaches. We will fight them on the landing fields. We will fight them in the fields and the cities. We will fight them in the hills. This is a retreat coming back up in England as German troops advance. That's a pretty harsh thing to lay on the British public. But he thought it was necessary. And in fact, uh, in September 1940, they had a code word they were going to broadcast if they thought a German invasion was imminent. That's to say, within a few hours. In September 9th, 1940, that code word, Cromwell, was broadcast, saying the Germans are coming. It's so fascinating to the the way that um, this work immerses us in the perception, the way 
the people saw themselves in the time. I think that's a really key thing you do throughout this book is you put us in their eyes and show us not how we have judged them on the results of their efforts, but how they were judged in the moment by those around them. How did you manage to, I guess, uh, extract all that perceptions that we have? I mean, this culture is built 70, 80 years I'm glad you asked that because it was it was an interesting effort. I immersed myself in contemporary documents of the time, uh, especially two things, diaries and letters written at the time because I like diaries because they give you the perception of the moment in which the outcome is not known. And so I think I read every diary of every British politician, literary figure of, of the 30s and 40s, a lot of letters to people. And a lot of speeches. The British system called Hansard, for some reason, is much better than the congressional record, very easy to search. So I went back and read almost everything Churchill said in the House of Commons in the 1930s and 40s, and also read the responses to him. And frequently you read these, and Churchill will say something, and then somebody else will yell something out, and basically there's wild applause at the person who attacks uh, Churchill. He really is kind of a punching bag for a lot of people in in the House of Commons in the 1930s. It's interesting that towards the end of their lives, um, neither of these men were, you know, at, as much in the eye as they are now. And I think that that says something about the way they were seen and that the way we see people now, I mean, we... It, you read this book, then you have to pull yourself back out and reimmerse in this world and say, wait a second, who's playing what part on this stage now? And I think one reason that they do seem so different to us than they did to their contemporaries is they had their finger on the button. They understood their time better than their contemporaries did. And this has been proven by subsequent events. So at the time, who knows? what Orwell is really talking about and whether that's really an accurate description of current and future problems. Now, sitting here in 2017, you read 1984 and go, well, this is not just a book about Stalinism and intrusive communist government. It's a, a book about today's National Security Agency and government surveillance. It's a book about Silicon Valley companies data mining our lives in which Google and Apple and other contemporary companies have made our private lives a new product to be to be mined, just as the coal miners that Orwell observed were mining the seams of coal of England. These corporations are now mining the seams of our lives. And when you think of that in terms of individual liberty, as the as Orwell and at that atomic level as Orwell and um, Churchill both saw it, that becomes a particularly frightening uh, premise. I mean, that's that's something that they could not have foreseen. Or, well, it's something they did not need to foresee by virtue of the fact of their view of the importance of the individual. What they sensed was that freedom always have to, has to begin with the individual, I mm. think. I had an interesting conversation with an English teacher uh, in Seattle the other day about my book. And 
she was saying, what are the writing lessons you would give my students coming out of your book? And I said, number one, trust your perceptions. Groucho Marx has that great line, who are you going to believe me or your lying eyes? (laughs) Trust your eyes. (laughs) Don't let people, and I was saying, tell this to your 15-year-old students. Your perceptions are more accurate than you know. Go with them. Explore them. Don't let people tell you you don't understand. You do understand. And there's always going to be people who tell you you don't understand, especially people in power. Trust yourself. The second bit of advice I got, gave her was more pedestrian. I said, writing is not a romantic endeavor. It's more like carpentry. <laughs> uh, you get up every day. You bang away. You, you saw. You sand. You nail things together. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And as I said to you before we began taping, um, this book itself was a quite a act of carpentry and revision. Basically, the first draft my editor hated, I tore down the house I built, piled my materials, and reassembled them in a way that I actually came to think works much better. But it, it was a lot of carpentry there. You, you talk about the importance of the afterward in, in this book, and, and I agree because it it's like a, a plane flight. The first part of the book is the airport. You get to know everything. This is the plane flight that takes us off into wherever we're going. At this point, it's not doesn't seem like such a keen destination. That said, talk about um, but, uh, that. Uh, I'm happy to talk about that because I think this is an oddly optimistic book in the end. It says, look, these guys faced an even more difficult situation than we did, both personally and in the politics of the time. This was high stakes. Would Western civilization continue to exist? Is there a place for democracy? Can individual liberty, freedom of conscience, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, can these things continue to exist? It's shocking when you read Joe Kennedy saying, oh, America may become fascist if that works out. Yeah, he kind of his attitude was, works for me, yeah. Um, But what these guys do is say individual conscience combined with healthy institutions and the rule of law applied to everyone works. And I think that's true now. As I look at America over the last six months, I have some odd feelings of optimism, which is we have a president I personally consider enormously destructive. Yet he finds himself banging into a system that actually works. When the judiciary slaps him down on immigration, that's the system working. When Congress, after a lot of foot dragging, begins to issue subpoenas and begins to investigate long-standing allegations that seem to have something going on there, the system is working. And when this president flails and says, we have to change the system, that's evidence the system is working. I've actually come to think, because of this, that the saving grace of President Trump is his incompetence. The rest of the U.S. government is kind of chugging along, except for certain areas of his special interests, like immigration, mm-hmm. where he's actually able to kind of, okay, let's take the gloves off and let the dogs loose. But the rest of the U.S. government kind of chugs along. This guy has no effect. Uh, he can't get legislation through Congress. He can't get the courts to go along with him. He's an incredibly ineffective president. And you watch him and you think, 
he, he's not really a president. He just plays one on Twitter and on TV. He's a sinkhole of incompetence. And just let him be sit there and be ineffective. To, again, to me, that's the system working. There's a, a word in this book that comes up often during the uh, portion part of uh, pre-World War II, uh, appeasement. I think that word's coming back into uh, going to come back into the parlance because we've been doing a bit of appeasement ourselves out in, the, in Eastern uh, Europe. There. Oh, you, you're sort of seeing. <laughs> you see that you're casting Trump as an appeaser of Putin and stuff. I don't even know if Trump is thinking that much ahead. Uh, <laughs> that may be attributing too much. <laughs> I think he may be because actually my personal guess on Trump is there are financial shenanigans mm. in his past that he cannot bear and probably could not sustain, survive them coming out. My own guess is that in the 1990s, after uh, Trump two bankruptcies, that he couldn't get American banks to loan money to him. So he borrowed money from Russian banks and oligarchs who simply wanted a place to park their billions of dollars. My guess, and this is just speculation again, is that because he's not a good businessman, he was unable to repay those loans and effectively got loan forgiveness on probably hundreds of millions of dollars. And the problem with that is either you, because loan forgiveness uh, under our tax code becomes a gift, you have to report those gifts on your tax returns. So either he has reported hundreds of millions of gifts from Putin-influenced Russians, or he failed to report them, and that's tax fraud. Neither one is something he wants to come out, and that's why you see him kind of panicking and trying to shut down these investigations. Uh, so I, I don't see a good end for him in this, no matter what happens. I, I think that, for me, um, a book like this is so good at looking at the time through its own eyes that it makes it so much easier to look through it our time w with clearer eyes. And so that alternative facts we realize is just like bad reporting. You talked about reporting battles that never happened. I mean, but it's for the same reason. Alternative facts or alt, you know, facts are created because a certain political line wants, needs to be taken. And I think what you're sensing is in the book, I try to say, let's try to look at our own time through the eyes of a Churchill and an Orwell. And our time begins to look a little bit different. One thing I really came away thinking is that the truth is almost always, at the beginning, a minority position. That the majority will be wrong on large things. And that's another reason to trust your own perceptions or your own thoughts and not let people tell you you're wrong and here's the right line to take. Um, we can use these guys' approach, these tools, as I say in the afterward, as Martin Luther King Jr. did in his letter from the Birmingham City Jail, which is stunning when you go back and read it in this context. He begins by saying, what are the facts of the matter? The fact of the matter is that Birmingham is the most segregated city in America. What is the fact of our civil rights? The fact of the matter, he says, is that the police are used to violently suppress Negroes wishing to exercise the civil rights the government says they have. And then he says, what do we do about it? This is the Churchill and Orwell approach. Trust your individual conscience. And King says, don't let the state 
tell you what's right. In fact, if the state is wrong, you have an obligation to confront it. And if the state is wrong, it should jail you because that underscores how wrong the state is. The new book by Thomas E. Ricks is Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom. Thank you for joining me, Mr. Ricks. You're welcome. It's been great. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.